If the uh, fifth-year graduate student across the table is mouthing the words, get out now, <laughs> then that might be a sign that that's not the best life for you. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week on the show, we celebrate fall with pumpkin spice everything and talk about how the culture of your lab environment affects your productivity. Stay with us. We are back. This is Hello PhD, episode 16. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hi there, Daniel. You're Josh. What's happening? Not much. Not much. How's your week going so far? So far, so good. We are kind of in the riches this week. That's right. I thought we could go ahead and continue the good times with two more beers that we got from our Wisconsin listener last week. Or at least around Wisconsin, because we did have a beer that was from Minnesota. That's true. There was an interloper from Minnesota, but I'm happy to report these two beers we're going to drink this week are both from inside the state of Wisconsin. So the first one is New Glarus Brewing Company Spotted Cow Ale from New Glarus, Wisconsin. Is that New Glarus or Glarus? Um, I don't think I know potato, potato for me. Um, I'm sure the residents of New Glarus slash Glarus are screaming right now what they at the top of their lungs. Say it is. Please send us the pronunciation and we'll we'll correct ourselves. Yeah, I mean this one's great. This I love. It's got the label. Looks like it's right from the farm. Uh, I read the the descriptor of this and it says, "You know you're in Wisconsin when you see the spotted cow." So we're Everywhere. in Wisconsin right now. So this one is is very light. You know, we've been we've been sampling some pretty heavy IPAs and some dark beers. Um, nice light color. I th- I think I'm tasting some apple and a little bit of honey on this one, which I like. Yeah, you know, the nose on this uh, really almost reminds me of a cider. Yeah, yeah, it, it it drinks that easily too, which is which is a good quality. I can see some of this in summer, maybe even in the winter. Yeah, and also Dan, I don't know if you noticed, um, you can't really see through this one though. The color is light. This is a cloudy one. So I saw on the website that they actually leave the yeast in the beer to so, give it a little fuller flavor. It's all those B vitamins, too. I'm probably getting healthier. You probably remember back in the days when we used to brew, we would leave the yeast in the bottle, not for any reason other than the fact we had no way to get it out. We were really bad at transferring <laughs> beer into the bottles. That was the trouble. That's right. You know, we always tried hard when we poured it to keep the, the yeast um kind of down in the bottom of the bottle, but I didn't know that when I poured this, so we got it all right here in the glass. Well, like true hipsters, we did it before it was cool. Now we would be <laughs> like, oh, that adds to the texture of um, the mouthfeel. Looks, yeah. like, looks like you left the yeast in there. Now, you really want to try a second beer now? We are going to space these out, but, but maybe we can try them both at the top of the show. You know, I say let's go for it. So number two, this is the one actually I was most excited to try just based on the bottle. Okay, what, what do you see on there? Okay, so this is the Carbon 4. That's carbon with a K, though. Like you do. Um, and this is the Fantasy Factory India Pale L. And, Dan, we got to put a photo of this on the show notes. What What is coming out of the Fantasy Factory? Okay, so on the label here, we have a cat with a ninja headband, and it looks like a golden pistol riding on a unicorn with a rainbow in the background. And is the unicorn doing anything exciting? I see some extra stuff coming out of its face. So its eye is glowing red, and there's fire coming out of its nose. Okay, so we've got a ninja cowboy cat on a flame-breathing unicorn. That's the one. Let's taste it. Let's taste it. 
See if we can get all of those flavors. Mm. A lot of fruity, a lot of fruitiness. You know, this is something I love about an IPA that's done well is you don't just get overwhelmed with the bitterness, but you really get that fruity characteristic come through. Yeah, this one it really does have a nice balance. It's not it's not overly tart. It's it's kind of easy to drink, but it's got that piney hop flavor. I really need to find out what type of hops are producing that that kind of like pine flavor. Yeah, I like it. This has a lot of hops in it for sure, but it's balanced well. Yeah. So this is this is a good one. I I feel like I could ride a fire breathing <laughs> unicorn right now. <laughs> That's right. I think we definitely need to uh to get to Wisconsin. They've got some quality quality brews. Yeah. I'm I, I said in the opener that we were doing everything pumpkin spice today. I'm actually pretty glad we're not doing pumpkin spice beer. I'm not one of these people that wants to eat a, you know, I don't want to drink a beer that tastes like a cookie or like a pumpkin pie. If I want those things, I will go eat them. No, I figure it's inevitable. We're going to have to do a pumpkin beer. Probably, yeah. At some point this fall. Um, but, you know, actually we're... Prove me wrong, people. Send me a pumpkin beer that I'll I'll try it and, hey, and maybe I'll like it. I've always said my favorite beer is free beer. Fair enough. So if and you this send is, it, this is free beer. If you send it, we will drink it. Very good. Um, speaking of pumpkin flavors, I thought it was quite funny. Um, there was a press release that came out this week saying that Fisher Scientific was going to release pumpkin spice agaros. Yeah, and this is from the esteemed journal Proceedings of the Natural Institute of Science, or PNIS. And you didn't even make that up. So clearly satire, but they did a very uh, funny write-up where they they announced the release of this pumpkin spice agaros and they quote the um, the vice president of corporate marketing and he says, we think this is a great product to fit the need. Plus it smells so much better than a rig- original agaros. Scientists don't have to worry about any contamination from pumpkin DNA because like most other pumpkin spice products, pumpkin spice agaros does not actually contain any pumpkin. Yeah, I got a good chuckle out of this. Uh, tweeted this out earlier today. Uh, but you guys should definitely check out the PNIS site. Uh, this is a good time. Be careful, very careful how you type that. N- NSFW. It's a, it's a satire website, but um, they were sharing in the, the festivities of, of fall. So, Dan, we got a question that came in via Twitter this week. The Twitter sphere erupted. Why don't you read it? Let me go ahead. Hi, Josh plus Dan, which is really ironic because I just carved that into a tree before we started the show. Friends forever. Friends forever. BFFs. Um, would love to hear a discussion about the work culture and differing work ethic at different tiers of institutes. I visited Boston over the weekend, and I was struck by the urgency all around, which I miss at my institute. I wonder how much more productive I would be surrounded by a hive mentality, and that's in quotes. What do you think? Interesting. Yeah, so I guess this gets a little bit at culture, right? Work culture. Yeah, it's a question, and and I don't think this is just a lab question. I think this applies to um, really any organization. I don't care if you're in a a biotech industry or you're in an office setting or you're um, an administrator. What does it mean when the people around you are motivated and working hard and how does that change your productivity and your experience? You know, they, they describe this urgency and they describe this hive, which I think really reminisces or calls to mind bees. Like, you know, we're, we're all constantly buzzing, constantly, constantly working. Buzzing. Yep. And, and you sense it. And I synchronous, I, I don't know if you've been in situations like that where you sense that everybody around you is, firing on all cylinders everybody's and then, in the zone everybody has a job to do and the it's alternative like a dance. where everybody's kind of like phoning it in and they trying to get out of there and surfing the web 
Yeah, and that can be very demotivating, and and honestly, that culture can be, um, you know, that can really rub off. You know, a few people you come into an environment where people are high intensity. Uh, working hard, you can't help but work hard. And the converse is certainly true as well. Yeah, I think that's true. In a group setting, we are going to conform to whatever normal is. And I, I don't think that makes us bad people. I think it's just a reality. So um, finding the right situation makes a difference. Yeah. So I guess, are we agreeing that there is an effect of the culture on your productivity? I think there is. And and I want to talk about some of the underlying things, like what makes a culture productive? What makes people feel like... Um, working hard, I think the first thing is, are people excited about what they're doing? You know, if you're in a place where everybody's just like, oh, this stupid thing, you know, I don't care about it. Nobody's going to work hard. Nobody's going to, hopefully that's not the case at this, whatever institution they're talking about. But the reality is you can be disinterested in what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a whole lot to be said about when your identity lines up with the work that you have to do. Yep. So if you feel like um, the tasks at hand really are a part of who you are and a part of what you want to be and align with, I guess, your worldview and your, your morals. It's much easier to be motivated. Yeah, and you feel like you're making a difference. I mean, it's, it's a kind of an expression of who you are as a person. You're going to be more involved. And I think that's, if you can find people living like that, that is such an important environment to, to be in and stay in. Absolutely. And, you know, I think I can remember both of those times in my life where I was feeling very productive. Other times I wasn't. And when I think about the times that I wasn't, there was a very clear distinction in my mind between um, when I was doing work and when I wasn't doing work. And I can still remember times, you know, when I would need to do work and maybe it was on an evening or on a weekend. And I resented the fact that I had to go into work. Maybe I had to go into lab at that moment. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. But conversely, you know, right now I really do feel like the work I'm doing is is me. I feel very much connected to it. So now, you know, I often will work some in the evenings. Maybe I'll go do some work for a few hours on the weekend. And I don't think twice about it. You know, I don't feel stressed about it. I don't feel upset about it. But I feel like my work now is more of just an extension of who I am. And yeah, so it's it not makes work all the difference in the world. Uh, actually, uh, I had a friend, Dan, I think you knew him too. And uh, he said this quote that has always stuck with me. And he said, find a job you love and you'll never work again. Yep. I've heard that. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's a little bit cheesy, but I think the sentiment is true, right? You know, you find the right fit for you, you find the right work, and it doesn't feel as much like work. So, And I wonder if, you know, we're listing some of these these more descriptive terms, these um, factors that are probably playing into the, the sense of, of uh, productivity. And I wonder, as this person looks at their own institution and they look at whatever they visited in Boston, you know, can they go down the list and say, okay... I see people who are excited about their work. I see people who are doing the thing that they are kind of made to do, that they're passionate about. Um, You know, they feel a sense of urgency. They feel like the work they're doing has to be done soon. Otherwise, uh, something else will happen. Yeah, you know, I, I think there can be characteristics like that because I don't think, you know, we started out just talking about, you know, it's important to be productive, to have identity with the work. But I don't think that can be the whole thing because that would say you know, in a culture that's less urgent, does that just mean, well, no one identifies with the work or in an area where everybody identifies with the work, everybody's really motivated and you find the hive mentality. And I don't think that's the whole picture, yep. right? Yep. What do you think creates the sense of urgency? Um, I think in some cases it's, it's whether there is some 
downside to waiting. If you're in a, in a field that's very competitive and other people are going to publish, I always felt that sense of urgency when I was in those labs. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're the only person studying your protein, like, yeah, I guess you can do it tomorrow. And, and it's a different sensation. Um, I think the, the culture of um, how lab funding is, is shaping up so if you see the, the clock ticking on that research grant, I think people might work a little faster, although I doubt that that's what's happening in the Boston situation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as, as students approach milestones, when I'm about to finish my dissertation or I just have to get this paper out and, and I have that deadline, I, I'm going to work harder and I'm going to work faster because I have just a little bit left to go and I want to get it done. Yeah, I mean, maybe this is a huge aside, but this is going back to a few episodes ago when we were talking about the the eight ways to improve biomedical research. And one of those um, suggestions from that, that article was shorter tra- a shorter training time for grad students and postdocs. And, you know, one of the things we, you know, we talked a little bit about was the potential of having a finite period of time for graduate training. And, you know, that was one of the things that really occurred to me that can be demotivating about graduate school is there's no defined end date. There's not always that, I guess that pressure point, that sense of urgency to get done at a specific time, you can almost always put it off to tomorrow unless you do have that external circumstance of, you know, waiting to get scooped or whatever. Yeah, it's totally true. Um, And, and I think that's, that's a fair point that we could switch the, uh, the system. We could change the motivation there and help make things more productive and more um, urgent. But but one of the other things that, that makes a lot of difference is how do you work with the people that are near you? So it felt like in the question when they're talking about a hive, you know, in a hive, everybody's working together and there's not conflict. Um, but if you feel really isolated in your lab or in your, in your floor, let's say, or if none of the labs talk to each other, you, you know, maybe each individual lab is doing great work and is very productive, but maybe you're not part of this system where everybody feels like they're working hard. You know, one of the things I think that stood out in this question is, does it have anything to do with the type of institution? Do you think that it's it's like you land at a top-tier research university and everything's great, and you go to a small liberal arts college and everybody's sitting around? What do, what do you think the, the split is there? You know, I don't think it's that simple. I don't think you can just, you know, tie it to type of institution and say, well, you know, at a top-tier R1 research institution everybody's working hard all the time. It's a people beehive. People in Boston work harder than people anywhere else. That might be true. That could know. be true. It could be true. Uh, that is one hypothesis. Um, however, I've got a little bit of data that makes me think maybe that's not the case. At least two anecdotes? That's data. N equals two is better than there N equals yep. one, right? Um, so, Dan, I had two conversations uh, within the past year, both at my institution um, at UNC. And the first one was with a PI, And, you know, the PI, we were just talking a little bit, and and he mentioned the culture of where he was a postdoc, which was another research institution. And he talked about how the culture there, people were working all the time. No matter what hour of the day you came in, no matter what day of the week, there were always people working late hours all the time. And he felt like now, you know, where he was in his lab, on his floor, it would be five, six o'clock, and everybody was cleared out. And he was talking about what a different culture it was than what he was used to as a postdoc. Yeah, it does seem different. Yeah. So to him, perhaps, 
the culture is very different where he is now than where it was. And and he was implying he was longing for those old days? Yeah, I think he had mixed feelings about it. You know, I think now also he had a family and there were pros and cons. Yeah, sure. Right, but it did seem like maybe there was a little bit of longing, similar to the the listener, um, for those days, that hive mentality. I could, I could see that imagery in the way he sure. was describing it. Sure, you ride the wave of everyone's enthusiasm. I think it's a it's a exciting place to work. Absolutely. And so... Then on the flip side, very recently, I had a conversation with a postdoc who had done her graduate work at a different research one institution, a top research institution, and she had just the opposite to say. She remembered as a graduate student this very laid-back, slow-paced atmosphere, but now that she was at UNC, uh, in the lab she was in, people worked all the time, nights, weekends, no matter when you came in, there was sort of this expectation People are working all the time. Same institution, right? But two different people with Maybe two different departments or different floors or different, certainly absolutely. different labs. Absolutely. And so what that made me think, you know, when I read this question, is that maybe it's not so much an institution to institution variation, but maybe a department to department, floor to floor, as you said, or even a lab to lab difference. You know, I think there could be a little bit of proximity effect. Maybe if, you know, you have you have one lab that has this really intense work ethic. Maybe that rubs off on the neighboring labs. Um, but I don't know. I think, you know, more and more, this could be some lab-to-lab variability. So if that is the case, then it seems like that's something that you should be including as you search for your next spot. Yeah, so the other thing that was clear from those conversations was that whereas, you know, the one individual seemed to be missing that very intense um, work ethic culture. The other person, just the opposite. She was feeling a little more stifled um, in the more high-pressure environment and was longing for this sort of slower-paced environment. And it turns out they were both in the exact same lab. (laughs) They were both feeling the same elephant in different parts, and they had a different experience. It could be. It could be. You know, Dan, another thing I wanted to say about you know, the culture, something that can affect the culture of a lab is sometimes I think you have to look at the life stage of a lot of the people in the lab because I know personally speaking, when I was an undergraduate, I was at a small liberal arts school. And so as far as tiers of institutions go, you know, this was not a place that had PhD students. Uh, There were no postdocs. So you could say on one hand, you would perceive this would be a lower intensity place. Yeah, I think that that's what I would assume. However, I remember, you know, working there, being an undergraduate and being there with predominantly other undergraduates, master's degree students, and most of us were were young, we were in our, you know, early 20s, didn't have families. I remember working, we especially over the summer, we would be there from first thing in the morning, we would stay till seven, eight o'clock at night, we would all go together, get dinner, come back to the lab, often stay until late, late into the wee hours of the morning. We'd come back and do it all again. Yeah. Yeah. And that is the exact, that's the feeling of um, cohesion and of busyness. And I think that's what the person was describing. Absolutely. I mean, we very much were a hive. We were working very hard. But you did not have any children. Yeah. It was just me. The only things I had to think about at that time were my lab work. And so my brain capacity was mostly filled with my lab work during that time. And, you know, I know from having a family now, having, you know, a spouse and children, that 
I'm just pulled in so many different directions. I'm actually not able to devote as much time to being in the lab. But one thing we mentioned last week with the time management is you, Dan, told a story about a postdoc in your grad school lab who was married, who got way more done, and and she had a family, and she she basically did it all. So, but she wasn't there until midnight. And if you showed up, you know, if you were sitting there at 6 p.m. and you thought, oh, why is the lab empty? You would have this sense that you were the only person still working. But the reality is she did 10 times more work than you did while she was there. Yeah, that's true. And so I think it's a point worth mentioning that, you know, life stage can certainly have have an impact on that. So that might be something else for you to factor in when you're entering into whether it's a graduate school lab or a postdoc lab is looking around and seeing like, okay, what are my restraints going to be as far as my my family, as far as other commitments I have, and maybe looking around at the other people in the lab who maybe have similar commitments and see how that's handled in the context of that lab culture. Yeah, and I think if you are one of the people that has a lot of nostalgia, like the, the person you described at, at your um, work, if you have a lot of nostalgia about how it used to be when you used to work at a very high-intensity lab, please take into account what life stage were you at at that time and what life stage were the other people in your lab because maybe other people are experiencing that right now in your lab but now you are not part of it because you're not at that stage you know what i mean like that, if, if that, you're going home you're not seeing that everybody's staying there and working very intensively yeah that's a great point i have such fond memories of that time of working really hard with people i formed very close relationships with those people at the time but if i was back in that environment now it would be completely yeah, there's different. No way you'd be able to. I mean, you wouldn't want to. You wouldn't want to do it now. I wouldn't want to. You're right. You're right. Priority shift. I do want to mention one thing, and that is, you know, I don't think it's necessarily the labs that, you know, are working the longest hours and, you know, have that sort of competitive culture. Those are the only successful labs. You know, I think there are Certainly. different ways to be successful in different ways to be productive in different styles. The number of hours is not the definition of whether you're, you're doing the work that you were intended to do and the work that you love. I mean, you can work eight to five and love your work. Absolutely. And, you know, I think what it really boils down to when we think of productivity, because really productivity is the key. It's not the number of hours that one works. Um, it's not how busy one seems, but it's, you know, how much progress are you making? You know, how far are you kicking the can down the road? I did 400 experiments because it was really just one experiment. I was so tired that I messed it up 399 times. <laughs> you know, exactly. I actually remember in graduate school at one point having to take a step back because I was having that exact problem. I was trying to do so many experiments at once that maybe I was doing them, you know, at 75% accuracy. And what I actually had to do was do fewer experiments, and my overall progress moved quicker because I was more focused. The It really ended when you put that mouse onto the thermocycler. It was just, what a nightmare. <laughs> made a huge mess. Yeah, terrible. A huge mess. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, I think what it boils down to is, you know, it's really important for each of us as individuals to really be self-aware and think about what, cu- you know, what culture do I thrive in? You know, based on who I am, you know, what environment am I most productive? And so some people certainly will thrive in a highly competitive culture. And while it maybe even need that highly competitive culture to be productive, they may actually have a hard time being or feeling motivated um, in a more low-pressure situation. Yeah, and if that's you, you will grow to resent the people in the more laid-back lab. And and it's the reality. If, if you want to be 
working from six in the morning till 10 at night and you watch everybody, you know, kind of roll in at 10 a.m. and roll out at five, you're going to hate that. So pay a lot of attention to what your own style is because um, it can it can really create bad blood in the lab. Absolutely. And then, you know, other people will feel crippled by that competitive environment. You know, that competitive environment, rather than motivating them, will make them feel paralyzed. And so... So, um, so pause a moment here. What type of person do you think you are, listener of the Hello PhD podcast? This is... Let's all take a moment and reflect. Yeah, I, I think it's actually, you know, you don't have to think that long to understand which type of person you are you'll think about what your priorities are in life and you'll know what really what your goals are and what motivates you. If you've got three kids and seven hobbies, you're going to know, hey, I don't want to be in the lab 24 hours a day. If you wake up and you cannot stop thinking about the next experiment, you do want to be in the lab 24 hours a day. And it, you'll know this about yourself immediately. Yeah, and you know, I feel like we say this over and over in so many different ways, but at the end of the day, what the goal should be for everyone is to identify what am I passionate about and then what is the career that most aligns with my natural talents and my natural passions. Because if you find that, if you really end up in that situation where all of those factors align, it's going to be very easy to be motivated, very easy to pour yourself into your work, right? I think a lot of times where you feel demotivated are when those your natural skills, your natural interests, and your work environment don't mesh. Yeah, that's a a very, very good point. You might you might be the I want to work twenty four hours a day in the field that you really love. Yeah, and you know, either culture is okay. You know, if you're at the institution or at the in the lab or the department that has a more laid back feel, that's perfectly valid if that's for you. If you're in the high pressure cutthroat environment, and I do think, you know, I've heard enough people talk about certain institutions. I do think that exists. I think that culture is perpetuated in certain institutional ways. The probability ways, of finding some places. each type at a certain institution may be different. Yeah, Absolutely. But it's important to know that, and it's important to do your homework and your due diligence before you enter into that environment. And so, you know, that kind of leads me to, to my last point on this, which is when you choose an institution, but especially when you choose a lab, you need to make sure you take into account the culture as much as, if not more so, than just the science you're going to be doing there. Because I think a lot of times, trainees, grad students, postdocs especially, will focus on the science they think they want to do and will be blind to the culture or the environment, the work environment that they're entering into. And no matter how much you love the science going in, if the culture is not a good fit for you, you're going to burn out and it's not going to be a good situation. This is tricky because now, you know, we're saying you've got to find science that you care about. I mean, I think that's important. You have to find science you care about. Um, we said in a previous episode, you need to find somebody who's going to train you and give you the opportunities. If you want to do outreach, you better make sure that you find a lab that can allow that. And now we're also adding on to this, the culture, the the work ethic, the style of, of leadership of that lab. I I wonder, are we searching for a unicorn that breathes fire. That breathes fire. Out of its nose yeah. with a ninja cat. Yeah, not not to do a segue, but um, it probably does narrow down your options. Maybe that's good. Maybe you had fifteen labs you thought were going to be a great idea, and now there are three. Well, that you could know, be a good thing. You know how many you can join at a time? One lab, just one. And so yeah, some people join two, kind of. Well, that's true. But I think you know, as a graduate student, you have a great opportunity because you don't even have to guess. You know, most graduate programs, at least in the in the sciences, you do these lab rotations, 
right? So you get to actually try the thing out for, you know, 10 weeks or 12 weeks or whatever it is. So you should get a pretty good feel. I think it gets a little trickier if you're on the postdoc search, because honestly, what you're trying to do is all you have at first is the science or maybe a, you know, a network connection. Maybe your PI knows a different PI. And then often you go for the interview, you visit the place for, you know, half a day, a day, two days. And so you have to glean all the information you can about that work environment in that two-day span. And so I think it's very important for you when you're on these interview situations, whether you're in a rotation or you're, you know, on a postdoc interview or something else, you need to make sure you're not only checking out the science, but you're having the appropriate conversations maybe with other people in the lab. Even better, if you can identify someone who's left the lab, a previous lab member, that person is going to have is going to be more likely to be honest with you about what the lab environment is like. And you may feel more free to ask them um, culture questions because I think sometimes you feel a little um, unsure about asking a question about lab culture when you're still in the interview phase. That's a great point. I remember um, kind of nonverbal agreements with people in the lab that if this person doesn't ask this question, we won't tell them about this weird thing about our lab. You know what I mean? <laughs> like you don't want to You don't want to say negative things about your lab, but you know that... Uh, this is kind of weird and they should probably know that, but I'm not going to be the one to tell them. Yeah, pay attention to subtle clues. Like if if the uh, fifth-year graduate student across the table is mouthing the words, get out now, <laughs> then that might be a sign that that's not the best lab for you. So best of luck finding your fire-breathing unicorn. We hope that you are the ninja cowboy cat that can ride it to success. <laughs> we hope so, but it's out there for everyone. Um, yeah. So moving on to the etymology puzzle. Uh, if you'll remember last week's clue, it was, if a two-headed mouse runs up your arm and a three-headed mouse runs down your arm, what are the names of the mice? Seems like a total non sequitur, but that was the clue. I think I know this one. because okay, walk us through it. Walk us through it. Because I have actually heard several of the preceding episodes. Oh, you have? That's great. I have. Thank I'm you for a, listening. Um, long-time listener, first-time caller. We appreciate you listening. That's great. All right, so I remember Daniel... The the mouse, a few episodes back, that had to do with muscle. Yeah. If, if you hear me mention a mouse, you know that's, that's the warning bell that I'm going to talk about a muscle. So I think we might be talking about a muscle that runs up the arm and another muscle that runs down the arm. And when I think two heads, three heads, that is leading me to some prefixes, by and try. Yep, I think you're getting very, very close. I'm going to say bicep and tricep. You are... Almost entirely correct. Oh no! I'll tell you. I'll what tell you. I'll tell you where we went wrong in a second. But you're absolutely right. It's it's biceps and triceps, and it's bi for two, tri for three, and seps comes from caput, which came. Remember, we talked about the capitate bone uh, in your wrist. The head. The head. Two headed and three headed. So the biceps brachii has uh, two insertion points on the scapula, so it's got two little, I guess, two heads to it, and then the triceps. There are three heads. Um, but the reason you were almost correct is because biceps is singular. It is also oh. plural. There is, you know, if you talk to classicists, there is no such word as bicep. So if you're like, oh, my left bicep hurts, I'm going to have to punch you in it. My left biceps hurts. Exactly. Interesting. Now you know. And if, if you hear somebody in your lab say it wrong, you can punch them in it. Using your biceps. Exactly. Um, so I've got a clue for next week if you are ready. I'm ready. Okay. Insects in this order have four wings that are covered in fish scales. I'll read it again. 
insects in this order have four wings that are covered in fish scales. So, if I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue. Once you get it, you'll find that the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com. I'll randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. I've heard people do not like iTunes gift cards. Yeah, I think uh, as far as we can tell, not everyone uses iTunes. I mean, yeah, I, I, that makes sense to me. I have an Android phone, so... But many people use Amazon. We're counting on. I think everybody uses Amazon. If they don't, Amazon will come to you and find you. But that's true. That's true. You can buy anything there. Except Hello PhD episodes because they are free. Absolutely free. We hope you enjoyed it. Dan, thanks. This was a, a great show. And thanks again to our listener in Wisconsin who sent us four delicious beers that we've enjoyed. I'm kind of sad they're gone. I know it. There must be a lot of good beer in Wisconsin. If a ran, you know, I guess it wasn't a random sample of four, but all four were quite tasty. Well, I just want to point out... Well, all three, and then one was from Minnesota, and it was all right. I would like to point out that... Okay, now that I have to factor in Minnesota, there are 48 additional states where we have not received beer from. So That is true. Help us out, listeners. Do you count the one that I brought back from Massachusetts? No. Shabba-dabba-doo. That was good. Well, this has been a great show. If you have a topic for a future show, or if, like our listener today, you have a question that you would like to hear discussed, you can email it to us, podcast at hellophd.com, or you can send us a tweet at HelloPhD or reach out to us on our Facebook page. And we're on Stitcher. We mentioned that last week. We'd love to have you listen there if that is your podcatcher of choice. Check us out. Give us a rating if you like the show. And even more importantly, tell a friend so they can join the conversation too. It's been fun, and we will talk to you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye.